He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, somebody say rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find, somebody say rest. You'll find a rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Immediately, this moves into chapter 12, which is about the Sabbath. And there's a whole lesson to be learned about what rest looks like and what Jesus defines as rest. And unfortunately, I think that in our modern adaptation of Christianity, we've missed it in some ways. And I want to talk about that today. And if I was going to sum up striving and thriving as anything today in in one sentence, it would be simply, I want to preach, I want to teach on this, how to live like Jesus lived, how to live a life that emulates the life that Jesus lived. Because if we can strive to live the way that Jesus lived, then we can thrive in the places that Jesus thrived. How many believes that he has rest for us today? How many believes that walking with Jesus, the Bible says, and this is what I believe, his commandments aren't grievous to you. This shouldn't be a burden lifestyle that's too much to bear. If that's the case, then we're not doing it the right way. No, when I'm living life the way that Jesus called me to live, I can have rest. I can live unburdened from all of the things of this world. And yes, I may have sorrows. I may have troubles. But in the midst of that, I've got a place of peace. I've got a place of life. If that's what you desire, would you just pray with me right now? Jesus, we love you. And in this place today, I pray that God, you would speak to us. That Lord, as Hebrews has said, God, that we would labor to enter that place of rest, that we would labor to enter that place of rest. I speak that. I pray that. God, we desire that in this room today. Let us strive and let us thrive, God, the way that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Look at your neighbor and say, striving and thriving, and you may be seated. Thank you for standing today. A wealth of research confirms a truth that we instinctively recognize. This is not going to be revelatory, what I'm about to say. In fact, rather than being a part of the solution, there is a good chance that you and I are a part of the problem. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) Here is the revelation. America is burdened by overwork. America is burdened by overwork. Now, we could say this of the world, and many countries certainly emulate and have similar work ethics as America, but there are several factors that contribute to the overwork in the United States, which include long working hours, Many Americans work full-time hours that exceed the 40-hour work week, with some individuals working significantly more due to overtime or maybe even having multiple jobs. I'm not going to have you raise your hand because uh, what I'm talking about, you might feel like I'm singling you out or preaching against you, but I would dare to say that if I had everybody in this room who worked some way or another Over 40 hours this week, it would be a large number of people in this room. 
Along with that, in America, we often have what is limited vacation time. Even comparatively speaking to other developed countries, America uh, does not have the same laws or rules when it comes to taking holiday or taking vacation times. We obviously see high stress levels that have gripped the hearts of so many in our culture, and that is directly connected to the fact that there is overwork. And I sense in this room that people are already getting nervous, that your toes are being stepped on, or that maybe your wife has already elbowed you in the ribs and said, hey, you should listen to this sermon today. I think he's got something to say. Then we know that this is all culminated in cultural factors. The fact that you have a world that is telling you the more you work, the better you are. It's celebrated. In our opening text, we see Jesus spoke of a burden that was placed on the people, the audience there that day. He spoke directly to the burden that was upon them. Yet we understand that the burden that Jesus refers to in this verse is not necessarily a physical burden or one that comes from an Americanized ideal of the workplace. But the burden that Jesus spoke of in this verse when he told them that they would find rest from this was a burden that was spiritual, emotional. Jesus was addressing those who were feeling weighed down by the cares and the struggles of life. Rather than speaking to a culture of excess like we are here in the 21st century, Jesus was speaking to a culture that had less oftentimes than what they needed. But also he spoke to them because there was a heavy sense of guilt. There was a heavy weight and burden of being very aware of their own sin. They had worry in the crowd that day. And what we understand is that the religious system had often cast out these individuals. And so when Jesus spoke of a burden, it all culminated in the idea that you have been cast out, discarded by religious legalism. And Jesus looks at them in the midst of what is a heavy burden. Because how many knows guilt and condemnation is a very heavy burden? A very heavy burden. Jesus speaks directly to them. And he says, What you're not getting in the current system of religion or ideal that is being pushed in the local synagogue. I have come to bring you rest, both in a spiritual sense and in terms of finding peace and relief from their burdens in him. What a promise. You may ask, well, what does that have to do with us? We're Christians. These were pre-Christian mostly Jews that were listening? How does it relate to the modern idea of work and what often turns into a lack of balance in our lives because of the work-life balance being so skewed? How do these scriptures connect? Well, may I say this? Here's what we know. Our overwork is often a byproduct of our unhealthy mentalities. We can tell ourselves that the only reason we work so much and we don't rest like we need to is simply because we have to make ends meet. But the fact of the matter is if we are being honest with ourselves, it's a lot more emotional and spiritual than that. In fact, we know that there's psychological factors that are associated with our overworking and our lack of rest. We could call it perfectionism. Any perfectionist in the house today? 
There's one. Thank you. Perfectionists have this extremely high propensity to, uh, to make sure that everything's right. And they'll stay up late getting things done. They'll get up early. And sometimes it even becomes a compulsive type of behavior. And rest is secondary to the product. And then, of course, you have, uh, if you've not taken the Enneagram, just go with me for a second. But any other... Other, and I know I'm not supposed to tell you my number, but any other Enneagram threes in the room, God bless you. We need to have a support group because what happens is oftentimes you will place your identity in the things that you get done. So the more you get done, the better of a person you are. The more you produce, the more valuable you become. You see, our overwork is often connected to either our individual psychology, personality, or our cultural embrace of an ideal. The idea is the more you get done, the better you are. And may we even say that we live in a culture that if you are dealing with issues and problems and, and you decide to cope with your issues and your problems and maybe it's your past or trauma or whatever it is, if you decide to cope with those things by drinking too much alcohol or prescription medication or hard drugs or whatever it might be, everybody in this room will look at you and say, hey, that is not a healthy coping mechanism to numb the pain that you're in. But oh, if you work 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, and you use work as your Novocaine, we celebrate you and say, great job, you are a valued individual in our society. Now, I realize that the detriment between alcoholism or addiction to drugs is much different than overworking, but what I am trying to point out is that they're connected to the same place, the same root. It's an ideal that my identity and my self-worth and my fear of being rejected by others is connected to how much I get done. All of this should remind us that our tendencies actually relate to our own identity. Our tendency to overwork and to not rest is not just an indictment on a cultural ideal. No, it is an indictment on where we find our identity and who we turn to to find our identity. And when Jesus spoke there in Matthew 11 and he said, listen, I have come to unburden you from a life that lacks rest. I have come to unburden you from a life that is obviously connected to a system that has failed you as an individual and you as a family, I'm going to give you rest in that. We see today in this modern idea, in this modern day that we live, that it is very much the same. That when we think about getting rest from Jesus, when we think about him coming in and his spirit changing our lives, it must be connected to the idea that we are full of angst, we are full of overworking lives. We have a, a balance that is, is completely off at times. And, and we understand that when Jesus comes in and he offers salvation, may I just say this, he is not just offering a moment of salvation. He is offering a life of freedom. And the issue is, is when we come in and we want to get the benefits that Jesus has for us in salvation, but we don't want to live the life that Jesus has for us from salvation. 
You see, when you receive the grace and the truth that comes when you get Jesus, it will actually change the way that you live. And what I love about Jesus is he's so real and so honest that he looks at them that day and he does not offer or promise that, listen, you give me your burden and I'll give you nothing. You'll be fine. Just give me your, lay that down. No, Jesus actually offers a trade. You give me your burden and I'll give you my burden. I'll give you the yoke, which is not a very modern uh, word that we use very often. But the idea of a yoke was it was placed around the shoulders of a beast of burden. Whether, whether it was a mule or a horse or whatever it was, a yoke would go around the shoulders and that, that beast of burden would pull whatever weight was behind it with a yoke. And the idea Jesus was invoking, because there were a lot of farmers, a lot of, uh, it was an agrarian society, a lot of agricultural workers, they understood what he was saying. Because here's what would happen. If you took a yoke from one animal and you put it on a different animal, so a yoke that was meant for a mule, you put on a horse. Or even the wrong size of yoke for the same type of beast of burden. What would happen is that animal would pull the weight, but it would rub that animal completely raw. Because, why? Because it didn't have the right yoke. It had a burden, but it was the wrong burden. It was a burden that was not designed for it. When Jesus looks at us, he says, listen, I'm going to give you a burden. I'm going to give you a yoke, but unlike the yoke that you're currently carrying, this yoke, this burden is going to be specifically designed for you, and in the midst of laboring, you're still going to find rest. You're, you're going to be acting, you're going to be moving, you're going to be producing. Why? Because God created us with that innate desire to do, to go, to be. We're not just supposed to sit around and do nothing. No, he has a purpose and a plan for us. But if you've ever been laboring and working and pushing and toiling outside of the plan that God has specifically designed for you, you constantly feel full of anxiety. You feel frustrated. You feel tired. You're wondering, where's my energy? What's going on with me? But if you've ever been under the specific burden, the yoke that Jesus has designed for you, you do just the opposite. You work, you go, you produce, and yet you still have rest, you still have peace, you still have life. What if I told you today that this idea is not just a nice little preacher preaching a nice little sermon on a Sunday, but this was actually what Jesus told us we were supposed to live in? You see, the issue is, even right now, and I don't say this to indict you as an individual but I'm saying this to indict us collectively as a culture. And I'm not just talking about a, an American culture. I'm talking about a church culture, a modern Christianity. We have made living the life that Jesus called us to actually live a future glory. Oh, that'll be great one day. Won't that be awesome in the future somewhere? Surely Jesus didn't actually expect us to live with that type of of love, of forgiveness, of life. Surely he didn't actually expect us to rest and Sabbath and have the rhythms and the modesty and the minimalism that he lived with. See, I told you, I, I knew it. Oh, even my toes hurt. I stepped on my own, if that makes you feel better. 
This idea of living like Jesus is as radical as it has ever been. Why? Because of our modern adaptation of Christianity and our modern culture. We have come to believe that we can just push ourselves, force through whatever walls and barriers and burdens there might be, and then we are celebrated for it on the other side. What I am here to tell you today is that there is a voice through the word of God that is speaking to every follower of Jesus Christ that is saying, listen, you do not have to carry that burden any longer. I believe that God is wanting to lead some people out of a bondage mindset, even those that maybe he has already redeemed by the power of his spirit, that yes, you are saved, but you certainly are not thriving in the salvation that he has given you. What if God really does have health for you? What if God really does have a life that is freed and unshackled from depression, from anxiety, from fear? You know what David said? I I love this. I read this this week. He said, God, deliver me from the fear of my enemies. What if God doesn't want to just deliver you from your enemies? Salvation. That's what salvation is. What if God wants to deliver you from the fear? Of your enemies? What if God wants to give you the type of salvation that doesn't just get you out of harm's way, but actually takes the thought of harm's way out of your mind so that you can have peace and joy and life and hope? I'm here to tell you that there is rest for anybody in this room who would so desire to seek Him. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost here. But how are we going to thrive? Well, we got to strive. We've got to strive to find that place of rest. Can I just say to you today that Jesus did give us the mandate to work and to go and to push. Faith is in essence a verb. We see this because the book of James says to, uh, and you can start all the way back in 17, but let's just, let's just quote the, the verse 19. Faith without is what? Oh, we know that. Do you know that this verse is so perplexing and so frustrating that the great reformer Martin Luther wanted to actually take the book of James out of the Bible? He wanted to remove this from the Bible. Why? Because we understand that grace, the grace of God, through our faith is what gives us salvation. Thank God for that. But how can we have faith and his grace, which is free, given by him to us. How can that be the case? And if we don't work, then our faith is dead. You see, it was frustrating. It felt like a friction. And what I think is happening here is we have illustrated before us one of the great issues with modern Christianity. Why? Because we have become so possessed by the idea that one cannot work their way into salvation that we have made this idea mutually exclusive from working at all. Don't work. Make sure you don't strive too hard because if you're striving, then you're probably, you know, you're probably overworking and then you're trying to save yourself. That is the modern idea of Christianity, that if any of us were to work or to do or to go or to strive, then we have stepped out of the will of God. But I see the exact opposite in Scripture. In fact, can I say, some of the greatest promises in Scripture and some of the greatest benefits in Scripture are preceded by verbs, by working, by us doing our part so that God can do His part. 
What if God today is speaking to us and saying, hey, if you will do your part, I will give you all that I have for you. But the only thing holding you back is not my lack of grace, not my lack of intention, but the thing that is holding you back is your actions. I know that's a tough thing to think about, but let's look at the scripture. 1 Timothy 4 and 16 says this, watch. Somebody say watch. That's a verb. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve, or persevere rather. Somebody say persevere. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearts. Now we've got another problem, right? Because now we have to watch and we have to persevere for what purpose? So that we can save who? Ourselves. So apparently I do have to take action in order to have salvation. Because if I'm not willing to work, then God can't really do his part. Now is that a lack of grace? I think not. The grace of God is as real as it has ever been. And yet the grace of God is so good that it partners with me and says, listen, you have to watch. You have to persevere. You have to keep making the effort. And you say, but I'll fall short. Exactly. Because where you fall short is where what? The grace of God meets us every single time. But we cannot stop watching and persevering. Ephesians 4 and 3. How many believes we ought to have unity in the church? Can I get an amen from somebody? So here's what we got to do. Nothing. Wrong. If we do nothing, if we don't try, guess what we're going to have? Division. I don't know about you, but when I don't try to be healthy, I get fatter. I'm just not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to live my life and I just, the calories will take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah, you deceived. It shows up. So we want unity. What do we have to do? Somebody say endeavor. You have to endeavor. That is a verb. How many loves holiness? How about peace with all men? The Bible says in Hebrews 12 and 14 to somebody say pursue. Pursue holiness and peace with all men. And then my favorite, Hebrews 4, and we'll just jump down to 11. Let us, somebody say, labor. This version says, make every effort to do what? To enter that rest. You want what Jesus has for you? You got to work for it. You want the life that Jesus has for you? You've got to strive for it. If I want God to have his way in my life, I've got to be willing to make the effort. You say, you're preaching a, a message of works to save ourselves. I promise you, I am not preaching that. And if that is the response that you would have to this message, my my assumption is that there's probably a modern ideal of Christianity that has gripped you and has made these two ideals mutually exclusive. The grace of God is absolutely free, and I have to make every effort. May I even say that this is what has caused the doctrine of baptism to become such a confusing one? Is that people are unwilling to be baptized because they say, well, I'm not saved by works, Pastor. You're saying that I'm saved by works. Here's the problem with that idea. If you would have asked one of the modern apostles who preached, whether it be in the book of Acts or even uh, the letters in the New Testament, hey, do I have to be baptized? You, know, you want to know what their response would be? 
What? What do you mean, have to? Well, no, is it necessary for me to be baptized? The response that they would have to that is if you are asking that question, then you are probably not really in the right frame of mind anyway. Because a person who is full of faith is ready to immediately take action. And sometimes the line between your faith and your action is very gray. Because the faith externalizes. That's what James says. It's not about whether or not it's a work or whether or not it's what saves me. The fact is that God, I have faith on the inside of me and it is causing me to make a stride forward. Where did that faith come from? It is actually birthed from the very grace of God. You gave me that measure of faith. So now I will take the action that is necessary in your life today. What does Hebrews say? You have to strive or labor to enter into the rest that God has for you. I feel the Holy Ghost speaking to somebody in this room. God does have a life of freedom for you. God does have a life full of rest. God does have righteousness for me. And yes, I couldn't purchase it. I could not earn it on my own merit. But oh my, I sure can make an effort to find it. I'm going to do everything that I can to enter into that place of rest with Jesus. I'm going to do everything that I can to live this life to the fullest and be who he has called me to be. Listen, the grace of God certainly is opposed to you trying to earn him, but the grace of God is not opposed to your effort. You need to make every effort to be who God has called you to be. And what is so paradoxical and ironic about what God tells us to do is he says, if you will make that effort, you'll find rest. Because some of the hardest efforts that we're going to make as an American follower of Jesus Christ, as a 21st century church, is we are going to have to have to make efforts to do less. You have to do less of what doesn't matter and more of what does matter. God is calling this church, this day and time, to do less of what is menial, to do less of what culture tells us to do more of, and to find a place in God's presence and to do more of seeking him. I feel that so strong in this culture. What is often lacking is not a drive. It's a drive for the wrong things. It's not that we're lazy, but we're motivated in the wrong areas. And we get so addicted to our production and what we can do more of. And all the while, God stands to the side and he's saying, if you would take that same effort and you would begin to strive in the places that I've called you to strive in, you would begin to thrive in the places that I've called you to thrive in. Can I just say to you that there is a difference in striving and strife with an F. S-T-R-I-F-E is different than S-T-R-I-V-E. God calls us to strive, but often what we have in our lives is strife. By definition, what we know of strife is it is this. It's a bitter disagreement that has lasted for a long time. That's what strife is. And some of us have been following Jesus for a very long time, but we still haven't done it the way he's called us to do it. So what do we have? Strife. We have friction, and we're always wondering, why is it that I feel like I'm doing the will of God or wanting to do the will of God, but it just doesn't feel natural? Because we are asking God to do his will our way. But what if we looked at the life of Jesus as our actual model? Jesus would do one day of ministry and then would retreat to a place 
of solitude for an entire night. And he was God in flesh. Jesus would serve the masses and then slip away and find a place of prayer and solitude and quiet. And oftentimes what we want is we want to come into a very loud, high-energy church on a Sunday and get a shot in the arm and expect that to be the thing that drives us Monday through Friday. I love what we do here on Sundays. I believe in the model of church that we have. But can I just tell you, what is happening here on a Sunday is in no way, shape, or form a replacement for what God will do for you in a private time with Him. There is a solitude that you can find in a place of prayer where you begin to seek Jesus and find out His ways, seek His face and he begins to speak to you man let me ask you a question it's a very simple question sorry Jordan I'm messing up my mic here I don't know what happened I think my jacket's pulling it all the way off of my head Jesus wouldn't have worn this mic that's the problem who's the greatest athlete of all time and I'm I'm asking it's not hypothetical who is it Michael Jordan thank you that was a prophet of God that just spoke because I agree The greatest athlete of all time. The reason I bring this up is because I want you to understand that this difference between strive and strife is not just a little sermon illustration, but I want to bring a point out. Let's just say that the greatest athlete of all time is, in fact, Michael Jordan. How many of you would strive to play whoever your favorite player was, whether it was LeBron or Michael or some soccer player that I don't know their name? How many of you would strive to play like your favorite player growing up. Anybody remember that, being out in the backyard? Most of us in our childlike mindset would strive to play like our favorite player. We would try to do their moves. We would try to do all the different things. In fact, we would go as far, and still some of us do, God bless us, even as adults. We wear the shoes. We wear the brand. It's like if I have these kicks, then I'll be able to jump as high, do the moves, and the fact is that adulthood comes crashing in on us and we realize that there is no way on God's green earth that we were ever going to be anywhere near the goat. Not even close. We understand that this illustration of us trying to act like our favorite player oftentimes is what we do in our spirituality. Because I don't know if you're like me, But I tried to act like my favorite player during game time, but I was not interested in living like my favorite player. Had no desire to go to the gym like my favorite player. I certainly wasn't going to eat like my favorite player. I wasn't going to live the life of regiment and discipline that he lived. I wanted to to live like me, but thrive like him. I wanted to do what I wanted to do When it wasn't game time, but then walk out on the back porch or in the backyard, whether it was a dirt court, cement, come on, over in Sanford, 11-foot goal, George. We grew up on 11-foot goal because we weren't height-challenged enough. They had to add a foot to our goal. That was because they were worried we were going to dunk it, you know? Never happened. But if it had been 10-foot, who knows? Who knows? So we would go out there, and in game time, we would just pretend. And, and I'll tell you, you know how I know this is infected? I've, 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 I've been known to play a little basketball here and there. Because the most iconic basketball player, 
probably minus LeBron James, but of this generation, I would say he's about 6'2", 6'3", skinny. His name is Stephen Curry. Everybody loves Stephen Curry. And what we have is we have an infected generation that only shoots three-pointers. Can I get an amen from somebody? All they want to do is pull up and shoot three-pointers. I'm talking like from half court. And you're like, what makes you think that you can make that shot from half court? Open lane, let's just go ahead and pull up. Let's just pull a half court three-pointer. That feels like a better idea. You know what that is? That's emulation of someone who is the greatest of all time at what they do. But no one's actually interested in shooting the free throws or the three-point three shots that they shoot in regiment. We just want to play like that individual in game time, but not live like that individual outside of game time. And so what happens is we get strife in what we're trying to do and where we're trying to perform because we never actually strived to be like them. We never actually lived a life that emulated their life. Oftentimes, what we want to do is we want to be able to turn the other cheek. We want to be able to give forgiveness. We want to be able to love like Jesus loved. We want to find the rest that he found. We want to even perform the miracles that he performed. But we're not interested in living the life that he lived. What am I saying today? I am telling you that one of the greatest challenges that will be in the 21st century American church is for us to slow down and say, Jesus, if it took hours of prayer, hours of being in your Father's presence, you slipping away and finding solitude, you living a life of minimalism and not causing yourself to be puffed up and proud if it caused you to have to push away those that would make you of great reputation and you lived simply and you lived right then God how could we think that it would be any less for us today in this room what I tell you is that there are some people that you have been living with heavy weights and heavy burdens and you're wondering why can I not find rest today I know it's a challenging word but it's a word of conviction I believe from the word of God that should grip us. And today we can say, Lord, I'm tired of the strife. I'm tired of trying to do it my own way. I'm, I'm tired of trying to overwork and still perform. No, God, I'm going to lay everything before you. I'm going to put on the altar, God, my calendar. I'm going to put on the altar, God, my family life. I'm going to put on the altar every relationship. I'm going to put on the altar and say, Lord, there's not one area of my life that you cannot touch. Nothing is off limits to you. I give you all that I am and I pray in the name of Jesus that you would sanctify it and if it needs to be cut out of my life, then Lord, I pray that you would give me the strength to cut it out of my life or to add whatever I need to add. I am a living sacrifice laid up on an altar and Lord, every member, every, every body part, everything from the inside to the outside is completely and totally yours. I give give you all that I am today. It is in that kind of spirit that God will redirect. He'll change the burden of your life. It will, be, it will go from being a burden that the world or that culture or that family pressure has put on you to being a burden that you were created for. It will be a yoke of spirituality, a yoke of truth. And when you begin to walk underneath the burden that God has given you, despite feeling the weight of it, you're going to have rest. You're going to thrive. You're going to have life. Life. You're going to have joy unspeakable. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost here. 
We often see God's spirit in our lives give us breakthrough. And what happens is if we're not careful, we'll use our breakthrough moments where the Holy Ghost moved as like a prescription medication. How many times have we watched people walk into a doctor's office and say, hey doctor, I'm depressed, I'm frustrated, I've got anxiety, I've got issues. And the doctor says, okay, well tell me about your schedule. Well, I sleep about three hours a night, I've got a very high stress job, uh, I, I don't eat right. And you know what the doctor says? Cool. I have three different prescriptions. You pick which one you want. Am I telling the truth? Unfortunately, that's the modern medical model in many ways. We are more interested in masking than we are actually fixing. And what happens is we will live a life Monday through Saturday that is full of angst, issues, relational problems. We haven't prayed. We haven't sought him. We're overworked. We're not really interested in what does the word Sabbath mean anyway? And then we run in on a Sunday and we go, hey, how about that Holy Ghost prescription? You mind masking my bad spiritual habits? You mind numbing for a second in an altar? And then we walk away from the church and if we're not careful, we think there's something wrong with the church. Man, my church just isn't powerful enough. I'll just tell you what I need is a new, I knew, I need a new religious practice. No, let me tell you what you need and what I need. I need time in the presence of God. I need to seek his face. I need to carve out moments in my life where nothing can get in the way. And I say, Lord, just like any appointment on my calendar, which I would call immovable, whether it was a, an email from a boss that said it was a mandatory meeting or whether it was a, a meeting with my own family, I am going to place you as a priority in my life. And I'm going to live the disciplines that Jesus live so that I can thrive in the places that Jesus thrived. Man, I feel the presence of God in this room. God is speaking to somebody and he's saying, you want to thrive? Then you need to strive in the places that I, and you know what's great is God will give you the grace to make that striving productive. You're not on your own. I'm not by myself in this walk with him. No, he's saying, let me shape, let me form, let me change you. Let me put my hands on the places of your life that feel untouched and broken and burdened. Would you just pray with me for a second? I feel God's presence. Jesus in this room, I pray that this message would grip us, God. Lord, we don't want to use Sunday experience as a way, God, to simply mask Issues and problems, no God. We lay ourselves before you on an altar of sacrifice and say, God, your way, not my way. Your will be done, not my will be done. Oftentimes, one of the issues that we face in our modern Christian walk and ideal is that if we're not careful, we become enamored with the cross and we make the resurrection secondary. If we're not careful, we love the idea of a dying savior, but we cannot relate to the idea of a living, risen savior. We are comfortable dying like Jesus, but we often feel we have no power to live like him. Listen to me when I tell you that 
is a lie. That is a lie. In some ways, this could be described as the unintentional byproduct of a weak Christianity. It's a Christianity with a cross, but no resurrection. It's a Christianity with struggles, but no life. No real transformational power. Can I just remind you that we are not to leave Jesus on the cross. In fact, church history tells us that it was really not until the 4th or 5th century that Christians became themselves enamored with the symbol of the cross. If you look at the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century Christians in history, they were more enamored with the life of Jesus than the cross of Calvary. Why? Especially the first century, because they were still seeing miracles. They were still seeing signs and wonders. They were still seeing the power of God absolutely transform and change. And if what we do is we take that transformational power and we make it a moment rather than a life, if we make salvation a moment rather than an entire existence, what we have done is we have become more accustomed to the idea of Jesus bleeding and dying than we have to the idea of him raising to life and living with power. And what we do is we spiritualize the idea of resurrection again to a future idea. But as of right now, we're just weak Christians. We're just going to be burdened people. The only difference in us and most people is that we've been forgiven. And salvation becomes nothing more than being forgiven. And certainly salvation is being forgiven. Thank God for that. But God doesn't just want to forgive me. He said it in his word. He wants me to live a life not just of forgiveness, but a life that thrives with him. A life where I am able to see the same power of God operate and work. Man, I feel the presence of God in this room. And what I have come to tell you is that God has something for you, child of God, Christian, that you have not yet seen. I'm here to tell you that in this room, there is still untapped potential. That God is going to show you things that you haven't seen. That the presence of God is going to become that sustaining place where you derive your hope and your peace. And when you come to church on Sundays, hear me right now. All church on Sundays will be is an affirmation of your Monday through Saturday. You say, man, I've already been in the presence of God. I've learned to live like Him and walk with Him. And I've been thriving. Does that mean you're not going to have bad days? Of course not. you still got a yoke to carry. you still got a burden that you've got to lift. But when you lift that burden and when you carry that yoke, what's going to happen is you're going to realize that now I am in the perfect will of God. And even in my bad moments and on my bad days, there is a presence of God that surrounds me and keeps me and preserves my life. It's a hiding place. I remember a few years ago, several years ago actually, I had a friend who was a Coptic Christian from Egypt. We went to college together. A really, really amazing man of faith. But I showed him our church, walked through it one afternoon, and he said to me, he said, Devin, where are all the crucifixes? Where are all the crosses? 
Why don't you have the walls adorned with images of Jesus on the cross? And boy, that, I didn't know what to say. I'd never thought of it. So I kind of, I'm sure, muddled through an answer. But I begin to think about that. And one thing you have to know as I, as I begin to unpack this and, and answer that question in my own mind within the days that were after him asking, I, I, I started thinking about his Christian tradition. And if you know anything about Coptic Christians, they're one of the most persecuted sects of Christianity that exist. In Egypt especially, where he's from, there were many and still are many that are martyred for their faith. But they are not what you would call most a spirit-filled tradition. Their tradition of faith is very orthodox. What I mean by that is the power of resurrection through the spirit of Jesus living on the inside of us is not an emphasis. And I certainly don't want to want to sound like I'm criticizing in any way those that would be willing to give so much in a foreign land. I am not saying that today. But what I realized in that moment is that his faith tradition and my faith tradition, they collided. Because what he had seen and what the image that he had become accustomed to and, and, and had really seen Christianity as was just a dying Savior. The idea that he could be filled with the Spirit of God was not something in his mind. And so I sat down with him and I began to give him Bible studies and I watched as God began to whet his appetite and his spirit. We were separated pretty quickly thereafter due to uh, some of the things on his end. He had to leave quickly. I don't know where he's at today. I pray that in the name of Jesus, he has experienced the power of resurrection, not just the image of Jesus on a cross. But wherever he's at, it illustrates to us today what Jesus wants to do for us. Jesus does not just want to be the dying Savior that you emulate your life after and say, well, I guess that's the weakness of Christianity. Stop for a moment and listen to me. God wants to be a resurrected, real power in your life. A power from every addiction, a power from every chain, a power from a lack of rest, a power from anything that has weighed you down. And in this room right now, it's like I can see an image in my head of people who walked in here feeling weighed down and chained by the lifestyle that they've been living. Maybe you've already been saved. Maybe you've already been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Maybe you've even already been baptized in His name and you're wondering, why am I so weighed down? I hear the voice of God speaking to you and saying, won't you strive with me so that you can thrive with me? You've been walking too long in an old paradigm. I'm about to show you my presence. I'm about to become real to you every single day of your life. You say, what does that look like, Pastor? It looks like a prayer closet early in the morning. It looks like opening up this word and saying, God, this is more than just an old tradition. This is more than just an archaic book. No, the words of life are in this. And so, God, I open it up and I ask you, would you feed my soul? Would you give me rest? Would you give me joy again? Whatever it might be, let me just tell you, God is going to meet you there. And this is what I feel for Stello Church church. Stello, we're not going to be a weak church. We will not be a weak church. We will be a church that not only do we identify with the cross of Calvary, 
But we identify with the resurrection power of God's spirit. And we have the power to live lives full of joy. We have the power to live lives full of victory. We have the power to live lives where we have rest. Would you stand with me? I feel the presence of God in this room right now. You want to know what that looks like? Looks like so many things. But it looks like joy restored for some families in this room. It looks like the gifts of of the Spirit in operation in our life groups. It looks like people who in their own private moments have a notebook or a, a note on their phone. And they begin to write down the things that God is pouring into them. Listen to me. You hear me right now. I am not the primary as a pastor. I'm not the primary voice of God in your life. I take seriously the fact that God uses me as a vessel. But the primary voice of God in your life is right here. And God will speak to you every day. There's got to be a secret meeting place that you find with Him. There's got to be a place that you begin to seek Him. And you know what happens? He'll talk to you. He'll give you victory. He'll give you joy. And by the time you walk in here, you're going to preach to me. Pastor, guess what God said to me this week? Let me just tell you, you're going to be sending me texts of encouragement. And all of a sudden, the roles are going to be reversed. And I'm going to be finding my wife and saying, guess what? So-and-so just sent me a text, and it speaks right to where we're at right now. You know what that is? That's thriving. That's living a life full of His presence. That's living a life that the heavy burden of this world is lifted. And I've got a spiritual yoke that I can carry. I want you to pray with me with hands lifted right now. God, in this place, we lift our hands as a sign, God, of our freedom. As a sign, God, of the resurrection power of Christ living on the inside of us. And God, with our hands lifted, we declare that we will not be a weak church. We will not be spiritually dejected. We will not be a church, God, that lives in brokenness because of inherited weights of old thinking, of cultural mindsets. No, God, we we tear down every old idea that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And we pray in the name of Jesus for victory, for power, for resurrection life. And God, for anybody in this room that has never received the gift of your spirit today, God, in this altar, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon each of them and that, God, they would walk out of here with victory and newness of life. I speak it over every family. I pray it in faith, God. I pray it over every volunteer. I declare it, God, over my children. I speak it in the name of Jesus for those that have been longtime members and for brand new people. We are people of victory and life, God. We're not going to leave you on the cross, but there's an empty tomb that declares resurrection power. And in my life, God, I speak it. I declare it, God. I'm going to walk in it, God. I'm going to leave this room today knowing that, God, you are with me. You are for me. You are not against me. I'm going to strive with you, and I'm going to thrive with you in the name of Jesus.